Men, your battle against porn isn't about porn. It's about hope. Pornography may seem inescapable, but God can free us from his destructive power. The gospel replaces the dehumanizing lies of porn with this surprising truth. God created us as royalty. In The Death of Porn, Pastor Ray Ortland writes six personal letters as from a father to his son, offering hope to men who have been misled by porn into devaluing themselves and others. Through scripture and personal stories, Ortland assures readers that God loves them the most tenderly in their moments of deepest shame. Ray aims to inspire men to fight the injustice of porn and build a world of nobility for every man, woman, and child. Today, we're pleased to share a special audio preview of Ray's important new book right here on the Crossway Podcast. Let's get started. Crossway presents The Death of Porn. Men of Integrity, Building a World of Nobility. Written and read by Ray Ortland. Dear friend, my heart longs to reach your heart through these letters. Thank you for your openness. Ray. Introduction The Backstory. Thanks for picking up this book. I hope it helps. I hope it changes things. A lot of things. I hope listening to it messes with you. Writing it sure has messed with me. Here's all you need to know about me. I'm a Christian pastor. I love my wife. I'm not looking at porn. And I am a sexual sinner. I wish that last one weren't true. But there's a brothel in the neighborhood of my mind. And I've wandered in there a time or two. It's a big part of why I'm thankful for the grace of Jesus. Never once has a stop off at that fantasy land made my life better. And never once has Jesus refused to take me back and clean me up. If you're a sexual sinner too, this book is for you. Not the outwardly okay you, but the inwardly messy you, the real you, like the real me. This book is not about you just getting polished up a bit here and there, making yourself more socially presentable. It's about your heart finally daring to believe in your true royalty. It's about the real you gaining traction for new integrity, especially in honest brotherhood with other men. It's about you with other significant young men like you, building a new world of nobility where both men and women can flourish. What got me started on this book was a, a letter written over 200 years ago. In the final days of his life, John Wesley, a minister in the Church of England, wrote a letter to a young politician named William Wilberforce. Wesley had urged him to use his political clout for opposing the slave trade in the British Empire. Wilberforce did. He made that fight his life mission. 
He was bitterly opposed by powerful people, but with God's help, Wilberforce and his allies finally defeated the slave trade and made the world a better place. Here's Wesley's letter, and please overlook the old-fashioned style. Just notice what Wesley was asking Wilberforce to do. To take a bold stand against a successful evil that many people accepted as no big deal. Dear Sir, Unless the divine power has raised you up to be as Athanasius Contramundum, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that execrable villainy which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. Reading this morning a tract written by a poor African, I was particularly struck by that circumstance that a man who has black skin being wronged or outraged by a white man can have no redress, it being a law in all our colonies that the oath of a black against a white goes for nothing. What villainy is this, that he who has guided you from youth up may continue to strengthen you in this and in all things is the prayer of, dear sir, your affectionate servant, John Wesley. 24 February, 1791. Huh. I love that. The dignified, dear sir, the inspiring, glorious enterprise, the blunt, execrable villainy, the realistic, Opposition of men and devils. Sign me up. Anyway, this old letter got me thinking. What about us today? What if not just one man, but a whole generation of men, takes a bold stand against the new slave trade of our time? Pornography. Slavery is not gone, it's still going strong, but in a new form. Multitudes of men and women are in bondage to the degrading slavery of porn. Which makes porn a justice issue. And son, I know you're not okay with injustice. You know how God's heart breaks when people are oppressed and vandalized and dehumanized. But did you know? He's calling you, just as he called Wilberforce, to do something about it. And you can do something about it because God himself will help you. Yes, the human odds are against you. The porn industry has dug in. It won't loosen its grip easily. Many people in our day just accept it the way people accepted racialized slavery back then. That's why Wesley mentioned 
Athanasius against the world. Athanasius was a heroic man who went up against impossible odds, confronting a major wrong in his time for the sake of future generations. And he won because God was with him the way God is with you today. Yes, you. Almighty God above is with you. Don't tell yourself you're into your own sexual sin too deep to get free, much less to set others free. You have a future worth reaching for. I want to help you get there. Here's what I ask you to remember all the way along. Your battle against porn isn't about porn. It isn't about sex. It isn't about willpower. Your battle is about hope. It's about your heart believing that in spite of your many sins, like my many sins, God rejoices to give you a future you can scarcely dream of. You'll win your fight by believing that God's love for you is too great to be limited to what you deserve. If you see yourself living under a grim law of crime and punishment, with you always getting the karma you deserve, your hope will die. Your despair will sink you down into resignation, and from there you'll spiral down into porn and shame, then more porn and more shame, and on and on, you know what I mean. But I'm asking you to defy all despair. Because God gives his best to men who deserve his worst. I'm asking you to believe the Bible, which in Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm asking you to reject the hell your sins deserve. I'm asking you to sin against your sins. I'm asking you to receive with the empty hands of faith a future so magnificent it can only come from the grace of God. When your heart grabs onto that hope, porn's spell is broken and your freedom is dawning. So, maybe you are a mess, but with Jesus, you're a messy winner because you're his mess. And so am I. Let's start this journey together by you and me choosing to flat out believe the most repeated verse in the Bible that our Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. His personality profile is not balanced, but biased in favor of grace for the undeserving. Everything I'm going to say flows from this bright certainty about who God really is. And once you've settled in your mind that you do have a future worth getting excited about, then you can help form a rebel movement. Defiant young men who will someday dance on porn's grave. Multitudes of men no longer groveling, but standing tall 
and loving life again. And all of it, thanks to God. That old letter from John Wesley is why I've written each chapter here as a letter from me to you. From an older man to a younger man. Calling you to give your life to this sacred cause of liberation. But it isn't just me. God is calling you to grow a counterculture where countless men and women can get their lives back better than before and forever. That's why I wrote this book, to start a movement, because you matter and everyone matters. And when God gets involved, we stop limiting how much good we can receive from Him and how much good we can give to the world. I don't expect to live many more years, but if this book helps you bring some healing to our injured world, I'll come to my dying day a happier man. Part 1. Reintroducing the Characters Chapter 1. You Are Royalty Dear Son, you matter. You matter more than you know. That's what I want to talk to you about. Your dignity before God, what it's worth to you, and how it empowers you to change the future. Do you believe in your own nobility? Yes, you're a nice guy, but being a nice, likable guy hardly rises to the stature of your true destiny. Long ago, a Christian leader named Irenaeus got right to the point. The glory of God is a man fully alive. I believe that. I believe it about you. And what I'm saying is this. I see a new you, not far off in the distant future. A you with sparkle in your eye and spring in your step and steel in your spine a you more fully alive than you've ever been before. And the more this new you shows up now, the more alive the whole world will be. Can we think that through together? First off, I have to say this. I want you to become a better man than I've been. I still remember a painful moment from over 50 years ago. I was doing some modeling in Hollywood, suntan lotion advertisements, teenagers in swimsuits, go ahead and laugh. But a girl was in the photo shoot with me. She was sweet and kind. During a break in our workday there at the studio, I wandered into the room where the makeup guy was set up. There was the girl, standing on a chair, with him in front of her, daubing some makeup on her body. Her face was turned aside, burning with shame. Instead of her swimsuit top, she had a scarf stretched across her breasts, one end under each arm, barely covering her. The predatory makeup guy had somehow gotten her top off, and she was trying to cover up as much as she could. 
But he had taken power over her. He had violated her dignity. And she had to stand there, with him right in front of her, touching her over and over with his makeup brush, and maybe with more. I get angry every time I think about it. But at that moment, as I walked in and the scene broke upon me in an instant, I was shocked. I had never imagined such evil. I had no idea what to do. So I did nothing. I turned around and walked out. My thought was, I'll minimize this embarrassment. I didn't want to make a bad situation even worse, but I should have stood up for her. To my dying day, I will regret that moment when that girl needed help against the bad guy. I let her down. Not because I despised her. Not at all. I was just oblivious. I had zero awareness of the actual grandeur of my royalty and her royalty. It had never dawned on me that God himself was leading me into every moment to help more people experience their true grandeur. I didn't know to wake up every morning mentally prepared to bring God's kingdom of royalty into whatever the day might reveal, like protecting a girl over in Hollywood who is getting pushed around. I was an immature, fun-loving guy with a problem. My life was about me, not her. Where's the nobility in that? What I now know is this. I am a knight in service to the King of Kings here in a brutal world. The age-old ideals of chivalry, courage, justice, loyalty, courtesy toward women. My king lived and died that way. I'm learning how to live his way. Can we learn together? If you embrace your high calling earlier in life than I did, you'll do so much good. You'll be ready for anything, even at a moment's notice. Especially at a moment's notice. So, let's think about who you really are. Well, before that, let's settle the question of who you aren't. This world has no idea what you're really worth. Around here, you are at best useful. You fit into a market niche or a voting block or some other impersonal category to be manipulated for someone's selfish agenda, but that is not who you are. The truth is, you are royalty. Britain has its royal family with the pomp and ceremony. I respect that. But you belong to a royal family from beyond all this world. So how crazy is it that you might feel like God is up there rolling his eyes at you, thinking what an idiot you are? The God who is actually out there respects you. To him, you're not a pawn, not a loser. In God's eyes, you have royal dignity. Here's why I'm so sure about it. The Bible says that long before target marketing and voting blocks and all the rest of it, your story began here. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them.
Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. You didn't pop into existence by mere chance. You didn't bubble up from the primordial goo. You were created by the king of the universe, which means you have stature here in his world. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. Psalm 115, verse 16. As a God-created man, you have every right to see yourself as crowned with glory and honor. Psalm 8, verse 5. You don't have to make this true. It is true. Your creation was your coronation. The Hebrew word translated image in Genesis 1.27 is used elsewhere in the Bible to mean a statue. Now, you aren't a literal statue of God. He has no form, no edges, no limits. But you do image God as you think like him and love like him and stand up for him. You can think of it this way. This is a quote from a commentary on Genesis. Just as powerful earthly kings, to indicate their claim to dominion, erect an image of themselves in the provinces of their empire where they do not personally appear, so man is placed upon earth in God's image as God's sovereign emblem. Your identity, who you really are, is found in the king you represent. You are his royal ambassador to our broken world. Do you see now why I believe your life counts for so much? God sure isn't asking you to settle for mediocrity. He designed you to reach for nothing less than your own personal grandeur for the display of his glory. Now, way down deep, you know this. When you were a kid and someone asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? You never said, when I grow up, I'm going to be wishy-washy. No way. You said, I want to be a fighter pilot or I want to be a Navy SEAL or something else big and bold. Even in your boyhood, your God-created nobility was already longing to be fulfilled. God himself put into your heart a sense of destiny. So, what's happened to that? How did a man created for greatness become disappointed with his life? Why does a man, a man like you, with your God-given stature, ever feel bogged down and held back? Let me tell you one thing in case your mind goes here first. It's not because you aren't religious enough. Religion says, do better, try harder, pedal faster. Religion says, you've got work to do if you ever hope to get back on God's good side. But that's not what God says. The defeatist message of religion, shaming you as a failure, is not God talking to you. It's your own guilty conscience pretending to be God, and no one is helped by being scolded. What does help? When your Heavenly Father breaks through the noise of who you aren't, the cheap lies in your mind, the exhausting clutter in your life, and He speaks His truth to you, 
and you start believing Him, you start accepting your mission to image His glory in your generation. And that's how you start getting traction for a new you when you dare to believe that God, your King, created you for a purpose of greatness. Think of the glory of your manhood, the capacity of your mind, the range of your emotions, the potential of your career, the beauty of your relationships, the mystery of your sexuality. And God wants to squeeze all that amazingness down into a tiny prison cell of boring religiosity? That's the God-denying craziness that destroys the future you want even before it's had a chance. Here's the truth about you, son. Your foundational God-created self, the you that you are, is not a problem you're stuck with. Not at all. Your God-created you is a strategy He wants to unleash. Your human totality is a gift from your Father. You are a brilliantly created and fully equipped man just right for your mission here in His world. Long ago, God formed a plan to bring evil down and to lift freedom up. You are part of God's plan. Why not give yourself permission to believe it? Now, if you still suspect that I'm trying to recruit you for more religion, I don't blame you. We pastors can be hypocritical. That's on me. But your problem is not that you haven't obsessed enough about how religious you should be. Your problem is that you haven't stared transfixed at the grandeur of God's lofty purpose for you. You drift along in your nice guy, blah, whatever. You experience some highs and lows along the way, maybe even more highs than lows. But how on earth can some above-average existence possibly satisfy you? The you on whom God has put a noble calling. It's not as though you failed to live your dream. It's that your dream is too small. That's why sometimes you hate your life, why you feel angry and moody and frustrated, not royal, not fully alive. Your ideal dream life is like air. When a guy is hungry, it doesn't matter how much air he inhales. Air cannot satisfy hunger. When you settle for less than your true dignity, you're like a starving man in a world of air. Your hunger will never stop gnawing at you as long as you keep gulping down the airy nothings of this world's fraudulent categories. How could it be otherwise? If you trivialize God, you inevitably trivialize your God-created self. Don't hold at arm's length the very one who understands you better than you understand yourself. You risk losing your one chance at life. It's your lack of God that explains your lack of grandeur. How else can you explain why you, created for mastery, grind out the treadmill of your job or 
why you created for dignity groveled before degrading porn sites, or why you created for destiny settle for mere popularity, or why you created for authority can't control your own moods. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus got right to the point. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. We know sin is bad, but Jesus helps us admit where sin takes us. Slavery. We men, born to be kings, aren't even in command of ourselves. In the classic film, Lawrence of Arabia, Lawrence finally has an honest conversation with his friend Ali about what he's really facing deep inside. Lawrence, I've come to the end of myself. Ali, a man can be whatever he wants, you said. Lawrence, I'm sorry, I thought it was true. Ali, you proved it. Lawrence, opening his shirt and grabbing the flesh of his chest. Look, Ali, look, that's me, and there's nothing I can do about it. Ali, a man can do whatever he wants, you said. Lawrence, he can, but he can't want what he wants. And here he touches his chest again. This is the stuff that decides what he wants. We're told in our world today that we can succeed by making good choices based on good information. Really? It's that easy? Sometimes we tell ourselves we can sneak up close to the line between right and wrong and play there a while without actually crossing the line. And we can easily turn back before we get too far or get caught. But hasn't our own experience proven this a lie again and again? The truth is, sin is as unchosen as hunger, as comfortable as sleep, as inevitable as gravity, as lethal as poison. Sin offers itself as an option, but it takes over as a master. How can we rise to our true royalty when our deeper impulses keep dragging us down as slaves to resignation, exhaustion, apathy? The next time you hear a college graduation speaker tell everyone they can be and do whatever they put their minds to, if that were true, we'd have found our way by now, don't you think? The real reason we keep falling on our faces is so serious that it demands plain language. You and I have a problem. Evil. Man, I hate that. But it's real. We're not good men who mess up now and then. We're bad men who prove it every day. What's more, this grim assessment is equally true of everyone. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We're all like Jason Bourne. We're trying to figure out who we are. But the more we discover, the less we like what we find. Think of it this way. If evil were the color yellow, like police tape at a crime scene, then everything about us all the time at all levels would show some shade of yellow. Even our good moments glow yellowish, far 
from the radiance God created us for. The brilliant author G.K. Chesterton was asked the mega-question, what's wrong with the world? His answer? I am. We all need it, that blunt. Then we can stop believing in our own quick fixes. Like when we say to God, Okay, Lord, I'm going to change, and this time I really mean it. I'm going to prove to you how serious I am. And we do try. But we can't make it stick. Pretty soon, we're back in the same old mess. Why? Because we're a complicated mix of two opposites. We are royal and we are evil. Yes, it's that dire. That's what we're up against, a battle raging right inside us. But still, God's whole heart is for us. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it. You are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come, as the sinner that you are, to God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before Him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. What use is some patching up here and there with better polish and manners when evil lives within us like a dirty squatter in a once grand palace? But you can dare to be a sinner because God can recreate you in His image all over again. Here's how we face our extreme need by realizing God Himself has already faced it. An African child asked her mother, What is God doing all day long? Her mom's wise answer was, He spends His whole day mending broken things. What else does He have to work with? <laughs> he specializes in turning hopeless cases into stunning successes but not through any religious do-better-try-harder. God does it through Jesus, who now comes into the picture center stage. Jesus renews our royalty. When everything was on the line for us, with our dignity hopelessly damaged by our recklessness, God simply changed the subject. He changed it from us and our shame to Jesus and His grace. Not Jesus as an inspiring example we should imitate, but Jesus as the better self we've never been. Our King lived for us the royal life we should have lived and died for us the shameful death we should have died. This magnificent man, the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of God's nature. We didn't welcome Him into our world on a red carpet. We blamed Him for our misery and humiliated Him at the cross. 
The whole point of crucifixion was not just to kill a man, but to demean him while killing him. Never more than in Jesus' death, the nakedness, the mocking, the spitting, with the crown of thorns and the purple robe, it was the humiliating inversion of his kingship. The cross was like a lynching in the Old South, white rage vented on a scapegoat. Jesus understands shame. But the cross was more. Amazingly, the cross was where God started bending our evil around to restore us. We thought we were getting rid of Jesus, but God made sure we'd get ourselves back. At the cross, we proved how bad we are to God, but God proved how good He is to us. In C.S. Lewis's story, The Magician's Nephew, Aslan the Lion, the Christ figure, makes this promise about our evil. I will see to it that the worst falls upon myself. At the cross, God didn't sweep our evil under the rug, but exposed it and paid for it. The love of God is not a cheap compromise. His forgiveness is noble forgiveness. That's why when God washes you clean of all your sins in the blood of Christ, you can allow yourself to feel forgiven. Feeling new is the right response to the cross. Freedom is what God wants for you. The cross was the price he was willing to pay. You can accept his grace with a clear conscience. Maybe you look at your mess and think, if God has any self-respect at all, he must despise me. He'd be wrong not to despise me. But that despairing thought keeps you hanging back from God. Self-punishment doesn't make you more forgivable. It blocks your way to forgiveness. He is inviting you to come out of hiding and stand tall again. He's not at war with you. Why? Because you aren't really that bad? No, because in one blinding moment of painful atonement on the cross, the dark energy of your evil forever lost its bid for supremacy. Do you really think, after the cross, your shame drives God away? Nope. Your shame is precisely where he can recreate you the most gloriously. You think you're disgusting to him? Wrong again. The worst things about you are where he loves you the most tenderly. God welcomes high-maintenance men who keep coming back to him for more mercy and more mercy and more mercy multiple times every day. He isn't tired. And he isn't tired of you. He proved his commitment long ago at the cross. So, now you know why you can have your glory back. Not because you have what it takes, but because he does. Not because you haven't damaged yourself that badly, but because Jesus restores your dignity that decisively, bringing many sons to glory. Your evil cannot have the final say over you 
once you've handed it over to Him. He is why I have such high hopes for you and for other guys like you. He's not angry, not sulking, not holding out. He's got skin in this game, literally. He is personally invested in seeing you flourishing in your full royalty again. When you come to Jesus for the forgiveness you don't deserve and the recreation you can't cause, how does he respond? He is downright happy to give you his royal best. Don't worry that he might change his mind later if you screw up again and then again. The actual Jesus you're dealing with knows only one way to love, his way, which means not just grace, but grace upon grace, endless grace. It is his exuberant love for you, not your feeble love for him, that will lift you all the way to your eternal crown. Bottom line, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Son, come back to your royalty. Here's why you can. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. Don't try to figure that out. His big heart makes no sense to our puny brains. But here's the great thing about hitting rock bottom. All we can do then is receive His grace. Your true royalty as your certain destiny, why not sign up? All you stand to lose is what you hate about your life anyway. So here's a simple prayer any man can pray. Lord Jesus, I need nothing less than a new me. Please? I'm open now. Well, that's enough for one letter. I'll close by asking you to take two decisive steps right now. One, accept that Jesus considers you worth fighting for. You don't have to clean yourself up first. He'll reinstate you as his warrior for his kingdom because of who he is. I love how this Lutheran pastor said it. We are justified freely for Christ's sake by faith without the exertion of our own strength, gaining of merit, or doing of works. To the age-old question, what shall I do to be saved? The Christian answer is shocking. Nothing. Just be still. Shut up and listen for once in your life to what God, the Almighty Creator and Redeemer, is saying to His world and to you in the death and resurrection of His Son. Listen and believe. 2. Prepare for battle. As a newly created image of the King, you will hear His call to take a stand in many battles in your generation. And here is one cause that really matters to him, and it really matters to you from your own experience. The evil oppression of porn. Your king is calling you not only to stop looking at porn, but also to start pushing back against the industry that creates it. He is calling you to stand up as a liberated man, liberating others. 
My other letters will explain further what you and other men with you can do to serve his cause of proclaiming liberty to the captives. Maybe you remember this scene from the film Braveheart. William Wallace, on horseback, has just called his ragtag band of Scottish troops to fight for their freedom. The massive English army is on the opposite side of the field. Wallace is with his two friends out in front of his army, and the dialogue goes like this. Irish friend. Fine speech. Now what do we do? Wallace. Just be yourselves. He turns to leave. Scottish friend. Where are you going? Wallace. I'm gonna pick a fight. And he rides off. Scottish friend. Well, we didn't get dressed up for nothing. You aren't getting dressed up for nothing either. Jesus is picking a fight with the world of porn, and he's recruiting you to fight alongside him. It will not be easy, but human dignity is a winning cause, because he is in it. If I could somehow speak to your whole generation, here's the question I'd ask. Where are the young men of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death? Where are the adventurers, the explorers, the buccaneers for God who count one human soul of far greater value than the rise or fall of an empire? Where are God's men in this day of God's power? Because you matter. Ray. That was a special audio preview of The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity, Building a World of Nobility by Ray Orland. For more, check out the full audiobook available directly from Crossway for 50% off. To learn more, visit crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus.